and welcome to another edition of the Green Jet Ski Podcast. I'm Noah, your humble robo-producer, your host, and uh, I am caffeinated up. Let me take a sip of my coffee here. I haven't had lunch yet, and I am very excited to talk to... It's been a week for me, and also for a couple of my friends, but we're coming together in a common space to talk about so many great things. And before we get to the people on the show with me today... As always, go to vincentsaint.com. If you like the intro music and the outro music, Hope Dies Last, there you can find out more about his film score compositions. And head to the homepage for the Green Jet Ski Podcast. Please check out my interview with the fabulous Nick Cartel. Stage actor gave me so much of his time last week and came on talking about the national tour of Les Miserables. Still touring the country. It's coming to you. You can check it out. Just go online and also in the description for last week's show, find out how you can get your tickets. All that said, let's get to it. Callie Logan, my lovely sister in the Lord, is with me and my fabulous co-host. She's also got a brand new book coming out, The Wallflower That Bloomed, Finding Your Place at the Lunch Table of Life. How are you, Callie? I am doing great. I'm happy to be here with you guys. And yeah, pretty excited about the book coming out. I have wonderful endorsement. Uh, we just finished the back cover of the book and Noah kindly endorsed it. And it's looking real shiny and good. I'm happy with it. That's great. And when can people expect the book coming out? May 1st, 2024. I keep having to, I keep saying almost 2023. And then I'm like, no, wait, it's, it's 2024. I haven't messed up yet, which is very surprising. I normally, I'm just, I'm still in the, in the prior year for about three months, but so far I'm calling it 2024, about three weeks in. So we're doing pretty good. I still think it's 2019. So. You know what? Uh, yes. Let's live in 1985 is a better year, actually flying DeLoreans and all that stuff. I, I wasn't around for another seven years, but you know what I'm in. <laughs> well, if you go back to the future or back to the past with me in the DeLorean, you know, you can see like before you were born, it'll be great. Oh, I love it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Callie Logan. Yes, absolutely. Uh, CallieLogan.com. Keep updated there. And speaking of David, yes, he's back with us and he has agreed to come on semi-regularly, which is very nice of him. Very busy man. David Overholt, director and creator over at Vader Reviews on YouTube. And there he uh, dons his shiny black helmet every week and gives reviews on TV and streaming and movies. And he's not very forgiving sometimes, but I like that. And he's also got a couple of other things in the works as well. We'll talk about that a little bit later. David, how are you, my friend? I'm doing well. Thanks, guys, for uh, having me back on. It was great talking to you guys the first time. So I'm happy to be back. Yeah, it's pleasure to have you. And uh, also, if people want to check out something a little different, you just started something I found pretty exciting. And I tuned in last night. Every Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific time, you go ahead and you stream live. And it's something different. Sometimes you draw or sometimes like last night, you just play video games and get people to chime in about their favorite video games, stuff like that. It's kind of cool. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's it's very different from the whole um, Vader thing. I don't have to try to be eloquent or uh, intelligent. I can just kind of ramble on about stuff. So I did I did some uh, animation the first time. Then I did some comic book artwork the second. And um, just this week, I, I just played some video games because I wasn't feeling too good. So I just wanted to relax some. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, this next week, I'm going to be... Uh, 
any dinosaur fans out there, I'm just going to be showing off my collection of uh, some uh, reproduction dinosaur skulls and teeth and just talking about dinosaurs. So do you have anything? Do you have anything with the Dimetrodon, my favorite dinosaur? Or yeah, I know it's no. the dinosaur period, but still. I uh, I actually still have uh, my very first dinosaur toy I ever got when I was a kid, and it was a Dimetrodon. That was my favorite dinosaur when I was a kid. And still. as soon as I found out about a T-Rex, it kind of dethroned the Dimetrodon, but he's always been a close second for me. So I, just, may bring, I may bring my old Dimetrodon on the show. He's just cool looking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As an English teacher, my favorite dinosaur is a thesaurus. Just wanted to throw that out there, but they know just about oh, every boom. word. I that was, <laughs> love that. It was a bad part. That's like, that is why. No, I'm a. I ask my wife. I am. I, I love dad jokes. David loves dad jokes. He even tells them as Darth Vader. Vader reviews. Um, maybe that's what you got to do one night on the live stream. Just dress up as Darth Vader and tell dad jokes, Dave. Well, you know, I mean, I, I've done like a whole short video of them. I, I recut the scene where um, Vader's trying to get Luke to join the dark side from uh, episode five. And I just cut myself into it, telling like the worst Star Wars dad jokes I could think of. And it's intercut with Mark Hamill making all the terrible faces when uh, um, Darth Vader's telling him that Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father, all that thing. So it ends with like he tells a joke so bad it makes Luke just jump off the thing. So it's uh, if I can think of some other Star Wars dad jokes, I'll definitely do that. I, I watched so it. It was, a lot of it, fun. it was funny. I watched it actually during the Christmas break and it's still you know what? And I've seen it several times. It's just funny, especially when you cut in all the Empire Strikes Back scenes. It's just pretty great. Mm. Yeah. His reactions make the crappy yeah. jokes so much better. I know. Exactly. Well, we are all huge Lord of the Rings fans, and I thought with the new project coming out, which we'll touch on a little bit later on, uh, it would be great to talk Lord of the Rings today. And I found out that David had not seen one of my favorite iterations of Lord of the Rings, although it's not really complete. From 1978, the Ralph Bakshi, it was a valiant attempt and lots of rotoscope being used. Um version of lord of the rings and if you go to rotten tomatoes and i don't hold too much stock but just to show you where it lies uh audience score of which is what i look at 64 percent. i thought it should have been a lot a lot higher a couple of things in it i really didn't like a couple of the casting choices like if you've seen it you know that the sam gamgee and he maybe gave it his all god bless him but the sam gamgee voice is just uh michael shoals god bless you wherever you are whatever you do uh, is not the best part of the film. But I, I just, I love the style of the animation. Dave, you're big on animation. I love, love, love that Anthony Daniels is in it as Legolas, if people did not know that. And also William Squire does a lights out performance as Gandalf. Unfortunately, the film cuts right at about the Battle of the Two Towers and Helm's Deep. Wanted to have a part two, but we didn't get it. David, we'll start with you. You would never have pleasure of seeing it before uh your brother had a copy you watched it what did you think well uh it's kind of complicated for me because like i can i can appreciate what uh all the work that clearly went into it because rotoscope animation is very difficult um basically what rotoscope animation is is they film live action footage of people in costumes and whatever um and then they have to print out every single frame on paper so the animators can bring that onto a light box 
and trace over every single frame of animation. That's 24 pictures per second um, to make all of the movement. So like that's, it's a, an enormous task trying to do rotoscope animation that way. And it's amazing what they achieved with that. Uh, I will say, I don't know why they left in the take when Aragorn trips on his own scabbard and bothered to animate all that. Thank you. Because yes. when he's running, it's like, you you have to animate this. It's not like that was like a fluke on set and you're like, oh, well, we ran out of sunlight, so we'll have to use that take. It's like, film it again, dude. He tripped on his sword. But, you know. Um, makes, I really it makes like, it more human, I guess. I don't know. I, I guess maybe that's maybe he thought it gave it character, I guess. That, I that have is a thought point. on that, actually. Oh, please yeah. share. Well, so Tolkien, one of his biggest things was he was very particular about putting scenes in his stories and books about eating um and kind of like daily parts of life and uh, humanizing a lot more even his translation of the green knight um goes into far too much depth of the specifics that go into like after you've hunted a deer what it goes into like making venison and skinning mm. and all this that and the other so i kind of wondered if it was more of a human element it might um, be as a nod to Tolkien, because he was very insistent about that in any work that he had. And the Green Knight didn't even really require that because that was like an oral translation story handed down. And his translation particularly just had a lot of that interjected. So I think that was a little bit more of a, in my opinion, that was what I thought. But I, I appreciate that that opinion. Actually, I need now I need to go read the Green Knight. It's the one work from Tolkien I have and have not read. It's I'm, I'm teaching it right now. It's um. Interesting. It's an interesting thought process between chivalry and different aspects. And it was a good conversation. Um, and it's interesting. And she says teaching, see. in case you did not know, I, we don't bring it up often on the show. Kelly Logan is also a U.S. history teacher, shaping young minds across America. Yep. I also teach Western Civ, which we're doing in that class. But it's an interesting thought process as well with it being, you definitely see his background with Norse mythology and stuff like that kind of interjected in it, even though it's an English tale, um, where there's just some of the hints and nods of things. And it's interesting what he'll go more in depth with. So with that particular Lord of the Rings animation, I that was what I was thinking. He was, It was a nod to him just his love of going a little bit more wordy than you would necessarily need to be with different aspects of things, but it just humanizes a lot more and kind of graphs the bridge between fantasy and reality. So, And I like that because a lot in movies is often sensationalized and you don't really get to see the real aspects of characters that would ha they would have flaws if they lived in the real world. Some of that we'll get to with some of Tom Cruise's movies here in just a bit. We have, uh, lots of news going on with Tom Cruise, it, as much as I love his stuff. Uh, and that's kind of why I, I like this version. It, it seems a little bit more real to me. I like, the again, the style of the animation. Overall, take out Sam out of the equation. What did you guys personally feel about the style of the movie, the way that they told the story? It is a bit different than the Peter Jackson version, which everybody loves. I love it. Uh, but this one's always been near and dear to my heart. What do you both think, Kelly? I enjoyed it. I mean, it was very different for me. I mean, I, growing up, it was probably one of the biggest facets of my teen years, um, watching all three extended cuts of The Lord of the Rings. This is way before The Hobbit came out uh, and, with and my if friends. If you watch extended, you don't go back. Oh, no, no. And we would watch them. I mean, it was we were all 15, got a bunch of candy and just 
watched the movie straight and had so much fun. Uh, so for me, like, it's pretty hard to even bring anything into the realm of because it, I just have so much like that's one of my favorite things of being a child was that. Um, so watching this, it was a very different stylization, but you know, I think you have to look at it almost with any adaption of a book or movie or anything else. You have to love it for a standalone of what it is. And so I did enjoy it. I like the storytelling of it. Even I went back and watched the trailer too. And that was kind of interesting to watch just for the time period that it came out, um, how the trailer was projected to get people to watch it. Mm -hmm. Um, I definitely felt like it had more of an allure of fantasy more than Peter Jackson does, because even though it's obviously fantasy with Peter Jackson, it's more action oriented. It, it was, it was. Yeah. And it, I really saw more of that kind of um, what I call fairyland with it kind of like overtly make believe with this one. I did enjoy it. Sam did get on my nerves, which is such a sad thing for me because he's like my favorite character in uh, the Peter Jackson films. And the scoring was good. I, You can't beat Howie Shore. I mean, you know, next to John Williams, he's the GOAT. So I, there was that too, but the one thing I like, yeah, I agree. Music wise, Howard Shore, you're not, you're not touching him. It is a different adaptation. I love the Mithrin Deer song that they sing in this particular iteration. I think it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that was my thought. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. It was fun to watch. I, I don't think I would necessarily pick it up again to watch unless somebody wanted to me to watch it with them kind of thing. But it actually made me just want to watch the Peter Jackson once again. We'll get to David's take here in a second. But uh, so your favorite thing about it. And if you were a reviewer on the old rotten thermometer, uh, what, what score would you give it? What percentage would you give it? I would say 75%. And I think my favorite part, I actually liked Frodo a good bit in this one. I, I liked how they portrayed Frodo a, a little bit more than the Peter Jackson one. So. David, I know you are a big Lord of the Rings fan. And uh, I mean, like everybody here. And so this was the first viewing for you as well. What did you think of it overall, thematically, stylistically? Give me your biggest complaint, your favorite thing about it. And then, again, if you were going to score it, where would you score it? And with you, we got to stick to Death Stars, of course. Yeah, well, I'm I'm going to I'm going to be nice about it. I'm going to be nice about it. Uh, I wasn't a huge fan of this version of it. Um, but I think it, it was probably because I did grow up with the Peter Jackson version first. So, um, I didn't actively try to compare this to how the Peter Jackson version was done, uh, because I know his version is very different from the books. Um, but just on its own, I'll say that like one of my favorite things about it was actually, uh, I really like John Hurt's voice as Aragorn because he, he had kind of like the age you'd expect to hear in someone who's been around for like 87 years. Um, I know, I know Numenorians aren't supposed to age like everybody else, but just something about the way he delivered his lines, he felt a bit more kingly because as one, one gripe I have with the Peter Jackson versions is they kind of, they tried to like humanize all of the characters so much. Mm. They kind of took away some of their grandeur from the book. Um, so I did like this version of Aragorn. I think he could have uh, stood to wear a pair of pants 
his costume was a little plain, I thought, but you know, I thought the animation when Boromir died, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen Lord of the Rings, but uh, But we're well past the window. You should have yeah, yeah. seen so, this by now. It's really old, so yeah. That's kind of on you if you haven't seen it, I guess. But, but it was that I was a great scene in this movie. The the animation when Boromir uh died was really well done. And not only that, but like even the acting of whoever was rotoscoped as Boromir. He did a really good job. You mentioned Gandalf, he was good. He was really good. I could not stand Sam in the movie. Uh, I don't know what possessed them to do Sam that way. He was he was ridiculous. And the actor and, might be fine, but he was so goofy. Uh, it was yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> and everything. It's like it was so weird. And I don't. I really don't understand why they did that with them. I mean, I know he's supposed part, to be excited. I thought he was wearing the ring at, at times. You know. His, yeah. Well, and the worst part is Sam is like basically Tolkien's like autobiographical putting himself in it. So I'm like, yeah. I don't know if they I don't think they knew that because I'm like, this would have been highly insulting. He's, to he's, him. Right. Yeah, he's like he's kind of like the character you you really can't get wrong if you do Lord of the Rings. And they I got it the wrong. Characters are important. Yeah, oh, exactly. Really? I thought the ring race looked kind of cool. They, they kind of remind me of uh big angry Jawas at times with their glowing red eyes. Oh, they um, do. So, but their, their robes are even kind of brownish in the copy I had. I don't know if that's how they're supposed to look, but like the copy that my brother has on DVD, they're wearing dark brown robes and they've got like glowing red eyes. So like, well, it made me kind of think of uh, big angry Jawas. I mean, star Wars is a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Maybe they've evolved. There, maybe there's a connection there. We never know. So um, what did you guys think of Gollum too? I creepy. Um, uh, I, I I'm not going to say that I prefer the version, but he was definitely very creepy. You didn't see as much of like the conflict as you do with the yeah. uh, Andy Circus version, but I liked it from a, for a yeah. different reason. He was he was an odd duck. I'll I'll put it that way. I I, I prefer the Andy Circus version. I think. Well, not think. I know. I definitely do. I just kind of thought the way he sort of kind of. Uh, I don't know. He had like an odd sing songiness to how he said every line. Uh -huh. Like every line was the same as like, my precious, we want it. Ooh, that's very good. Is it? You know, it's like, that's how he said everything. So it's like, there wasn't a whole lot of variation to his performance. So I was kind of like, it's kind of odd, but you know, he looked creepy and Gollum's supposed to be creepy. So I got a creepier vibe from this Gollum, but I didn't like he didn't seem as conflicted as Gollum is supposed to like he mm -hmm. was still dealing with being possessed by by the ring and, you know, how yeah. it took its toll on him. I didn't get that from this version. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I felt like he looked like the animated version of the zombies and I am legend, mm -hmm. yeah, even though they're they're like, yeah, and he could actually like fully stand up, which was just a little weird. For me, that looked really strange. Yeah, I, that's like a weird something, but it just bothered me that he could like actually walk like a man and like a not person. be his crawly, like eating a fish whole self. Yeah, but I expected yeah. him. To I, be. I, uh, I did like, I did like catch looking for the uh, Ralph Bakshi influences from Lord of the Rings, though, because in uh, in Peter Jackson's, because like he copied the shot of uh, the proud feet guy when he's like uh -huh. feet when he's got his foot sitting up it's like uh -huh. he copied that shot like exactly out of the wreck ralph bakshi cartoon so that was kind of fun seeing those those i like the shire i like the portrayal of the shire it looked cool. yeah 
It looked Until nice. I was disappointed with Saruman as well. Yes. He, he was kind of odd. I don't know why they put him in red. And they called him like Aramon half the time. Sometimes they call him Aramon. Sometimes they call him Saruman. I, I don't know if they kind of thought people would get confused between Sauron and Saruman. So they thought, oh, we got to change their that. names. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. And like halfway into the movie, they thought like, now nah, let's just call him Saruman. That's, that's his name. So let's just call him that. So, yeah, I have a question and I don't know if either of you know this. So when okay. this originally came out, was this particularly marketed towards children or was this marketed towards kind of anyone who like, like an adult audience? Cause I feel like, at least from my perspective, remembering, even though I saw it, I guess, quote unquote, as a child, because my parents didn't let me watch it right when they came out. Like it was later that I watched as a teenager with my friends. So I guess they had been out for like three or four years at that point. But I was wondering, since it was an animated cartoon, was this more of kind of something that was marketed towards children or was this marketed towards an adult audience? I think it was a test because, I mean, this was, again, back in 78. David can give his two cents on it. Uh, it was rated PG, but PG meant something different back then. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and so because of the year, I'm going to say it was, again, I don't know this for a fact, but it was marketed towards a general adult audience and leaving okay. it up to parents. Hey, if you have a mature child and you want to bring them along, bring them along. But I don't think it was marketed towards kids. David? Yeah, it, this this wasn't intended as a children's film. Um I I made the mistake of doing a little research on the guy who uh, who made it and he he typically does uh, really, really terrible animated films. Um, not oh. terrible in terms of quality necessarily, but in terms of content. He was all about like, hey, grownups should be able to see nasty, violent cartoons with lots of cussing in them. So he he typically made adult stuff, like very, very adult stuff. I haven't watched any of it, but I've heard it's pretty bad. So I knew the name over the years connected to this project. And I always thought in my head, I wonder what else he's done. I've never looked it up. So it's interesting that you say that. Yeah, yeah. So just, just don't bother looking it up. I'm done. I'm good. So Well, and I was curious because I think it was might have been the same year and the animation style was very similar to that of have you guys seen Watership Down, the nineteen seventies one? No. I've I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. Okay, I have very uh, similar animation style, but it kind of has... Now, that story in particular has a darkness to it. Um, It was marketed as a children's book, marketed as a children's movie, but there are a lot of violent scenes and um, kind of in a similar vein. So that's why I was curious um, with just some of that stuff that kind of comes out, like is what was their main... I guess I'm thinking from a marketability standpoint, like who's our demographic, who's our audience, you know? Well, and maybe they didn't know because I mean, obviously I think obviously it was geared towards adults, but I think you even got to get more specific than that, even back for 1978 and not knowing their exact audience in the way that they filmed it. And even though it is one of my favorite versions of Lord of the Rings, there's a lot of, as David pointed out, like with the Aromon and Saruman, there's a lot of inconsistencies I can see why there was never made a part two to finish up two towers and then the rest of the trilogy. Yeah, he he actually uh, ran out of his budget, unfortunately. Um, like right when they were in the middle of working on it, the studio was like, "Okay, you don't get any more money. Just figure out a way to end it." That's why it just ends with like Saruman. I mean, uh, Gandalf throwing his sword in the air and him just being like, "And we won! Yay!" And that's pretty much that's the ending. Uh, which which stinks because that that battle. To, yeah, it, it was a good battle. 
it's all it's almost biblical and i know we're all believers here it's almost biblical the way that they film in the peter jackson version version excuse me the helm's deep encounter it's it's beautiful oh it's yeah outstanding i mean that's yeah that's the kind of scene that like it gives you chills every time Mm -hmm. yeah it's still and and for more than just that particular battle it's why the book is my favorite out of the three and that movie out of the peter jackson trilogy is my favorite out of the three there's 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 a very there's a sense of grandeur to it yeah Number well, I have an ongoing joke. Well, I mean, I actually said this at a speaking event back in August that the trilogy is the missing books of the Bible, you know, so. I won't, I, I won't, you know, argue with you on that, although I'm not adding anything. I'm just pointing that out. But it's, it's, it is just the way that they, they film it. Tolkien, I was being humorous, not. I, not I, yes, yes. Tolkien was a believer, but you can see a lot of the parallels that he was trying to make with his faith. Oh, no doubt. I mean, that's beautifully done, too, because it's it's not um, it's not so spoon fed. And that's what I like about it with the allegory so much. And there are different aspects of that. And now we need to give it to I, I know what about the rating you gave it. I'll give it if I'm going off of the star system, I will give it because I'm a little partial. I'll give it four out of five stars. If I'm going on the percentage thing that you just did, Callie. I'll even be more generous. I'm going to give it probably about 85% that I think there's a success with that film. David's going to be a little harsher with his death stars and that is fine. David, what do you give it? If I go solely, solely by my death star rating, uh, my, my, my lowest death star is a one. And that's because like, would I ever watch it again? And I would just for me, I would probably have to give it a one just because I did fast forward through parts of it. Um, not any of the story, just some of the, uh, some like the posterized footage of guys running around fighting. So I was like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm not feeling too good right now. So I get it. They're fighting. So let's, let's get to the, to the story. Cause I want to see how they do Gollum and stuff. So, but since you're my buddy and since you like it so much, I'm going to give it a two. I'm going to be generous. It's very generous. I'm going to give it a, I'm going to give it a, I'm going to give it a two. I don't want to be too mean to the movie because I hate ragging on something when people like it. It's just, I can really appreciate the technical side of everything that went into this movie. But as far as watching a story for enjoyment, I did like Anthony Daniels as, as Legolas. He was pretty cool, but there, there were a lot of little things that were just kind of like, yeah, that kind of, that kind of bugs me. And, ah, that kind of bugs me. And, ah, that kinda, you know, I, you know, this is making me just want to watch the Peter Jackson version because the ring rates look cooler and, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. So I missed the I think music. Was way to be. But, uh, you know, I'm trying, I don't want to rag on it too much. So I'll, I'll give it a two. I'll give it a two. For this you. is proof. The dark side has cookies. Noah. No, it's all. No, I think it it's just pr- offered you some cookies to be kind. I, I think it's proof that Lord Vader reviews has not fully turned to the dark side. There is still hope for him. That's there's, um, there's still good in me. There's still that's good in you. That's right. Noah here on the green jet ski podcast with Callie Logan, go to CallieLogan.com. Don't forget about her new book coming out. The wallflower that bloomed. Finding your place at the lunch table of life. It's going to be coming out in May. You need to get a copy. So keep updated at CallieLogan.com. And besides my special co-host, I love having David Overholt from Beta Reviews, director, creator at that YouTube channel. Check it out. And every week you're going to get 
on uh, Sundays. It used to be Saturdays, but now it's Sundays. A review of some kind with TV and streaming and movies. And right now, much like his Fallen Jedi masterpiece that came out last year about New Year's, uh, he's working on another project. This time, not Star Wars fan related. No, it is a brand new IP, completely new and original and we're going to get to that in just a bit. And if you want more about that, you're just going to have to stay tuned because now what I want to talk about, guys, is the Lord of the Rings project that's coming out here later in the year 2024, The War of the Rohirrim. This is also going to be animated, uh, but this is going to be kind of cool because there's some people involved with this that I think we hit on last time that are going to make it worth its while. Why are you excited about it, David? I know you like animation. So besides that, um, I know that instantly drew you to the project. But what about it screams to you? You know what? This is something they need to be doing. Well, the really cool thing about this is one of the executive producers on this film is Philippa Boyens. And she helped write the script for the uh, Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings films with Peter Jackson and his wife, Fran Walsh. So she's she's kind of shepherding this project to make sure it stays true to Tolkien, the stories and the world that he created. But they're also uh, bringing in John Howe, Alan Lee and Richard Taylor, who were like they designed the um, Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings movies. They're making this tie in with the look of everything from Weta Workshop. I just read an article the other day that said that the Japanese anime studio that they're working with to make this film they just they got this big file from Weta where they gave them all of the files for all of the digital sets and the digital scans of the actors in the Rohan armor. Oh, wow. Um, so they can make all of the environments look exactly like they did in Peter Jackson's films. And uh, Miranda Otto, who played Eowyn, mm-hmm. she is narrating this film as the same character. She's narrating it because this is the history of Rohan and Helm Hammerhand. And it tells about Helm's Deep. And it's going to be a really cool story, I think. I think that's awesome. I, I love the narration because it's like the same thing. You have Galadriel, who is the narrator for the trilogy. It, it's kind of an aspect where it takes a character that you're going to be meeting in that particular movie or series and it says hey i've been there i know what's going on it almost gives additional credibility to it so i like that they're using that same formula yeah yeah and i like the spinoff aspect too of it where they're not trying to recreate the trilogy because i get really tired of you know we saw this with the star or with um spider-man you know where they kept like redoing films and yeah. having new spider-mans and stuff like that and i'm like stop trying to reinvent the wheel so the only thing i was disappointed in and this is just me because I am such a Howard Shore fan, I was really disappointed that he wasn't part of this project on the music. He was part of Rings of Power just for the um, like intro song. And then Bear McCready did the main scoring. But I was disappointed that we don't have that pop up. I mean, I know he's, he's getting up there, but I particularly enjoy how he does the music and the study that he goes into and just... I like I like his approach quite a bit. So, yeah, that was the one piece of information on this project that I haven't been able to find, which is like who exactly is doing the music. 
for it. Stephen Gallagher um, is, which I haven't okay. heard anything from him before. So, I mean, you you have your top kind of contender names and stuff, and then you have some that are up and coming, like Bear McCready, and he was involved in the Outlander series and stuff. I actually have a friend who has worked with him and speaks very highly of him, says that he's really great. But I just, I don't know. I think I think there's a, a bit of a flair of it that just musically... It sets the tone. It adds so much to a project. And I think it, this is my two cents, but I think it can make or break um, it because it helps the audience know how to feel during different scenes. So I haven't heard any of Gallagher's stuff. He might be outstanding. He might be a great protege, but I'd like to, I, I like seeing Howard Shore involved in these projects just kind of from a purist standpoint. So. Music is so important when it comes to movies because I've seen several movies where I was gripped by the story. I loved the story, but it, when it came to the soundtrack or the score, there wasn't enough. And yeah, it's supposed to be background because it's not supposed to overpower you, but it's also supposed to add to the mood. And if it doesn't do that, it doesn't move the film along. And there's been times, David and Callie, where it's literally said, you know what? I didn't really enjoy the movie that much because it was there was nothing there. Well, I mean, a good example of um, the importance of the music and not not only just the music itself, but like who's conducting it and everything. Because Howard Shore, he would conduct his own mm -hmm. uh, music for Lord yep. of the Rings. Yep. Um, you can see how much that is affected when you think about the difference between Jurassic Park, which was scored and conducted by John Williams, and The Lost World. He used some of John Williams' themes like to the note, but he didn't conduct them with like the same, um, like for lack of a better word, love that John Williams did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the same sweeping emotional quality. It was just kind of like it was right on a perfect meter. It wasn't bad, but it, it was still John Williams' theme, but like it didn't have the same emotional weight to it. Um, I would say it was in the style of John Williams, but it wasn't. Mm -hmm. Like in that, like you said, it didn't have the the gusto and and the vigor and the the feeling and the motion that he does. But I mean, to be fair, I mean, only John Williams is John Williams. I mean, he did Star Wars, Jurassic Park. I mean, most. I mean, what did he do? Terminal. I, that there's so many his. And that's guys. That's why I really enjoy music to movies so much. I think it's a make or break issue for a film and maybe david knows this is the film that i'm talking about it wasn't dragon heart but there was another movie it was dragon based and it was i believe i want to say it was mid or late 90s and the score was absolutely i mean it wasn't just okay it was horrible it took me out of the film and i to this day can't even tell you a lot of the details of the film because the music was that bad yeah i'm trying to think there were a lot of early fantasy movies that were like that. Um, I know Hawk and Slayer, not not Hawk the Slayer, but what was it? Lady Hawk was that same way, uh -huh. where the music was absolutely terrible and it messed up an otherwise great movie. Um, the music in a film, it's like it's it's really it's the heartbeat of a movie, and it's not there just to like cover up the background and. You know, if there's any like pops in the mic, you know, a lot of people think like you can just drop any track behind a film and it'll work. But there's so much. Uh, the name of the, the name of the movie is oh, is that? No, that's not it. it. It it starts with an E and that's I saw Aragon pop up. Aragon? I, don't think, I don't think that's it either. 
Oh, I think I know the one you're talking about, but I can't remember what the, but it does. It sets the tone. And I mean, it, it invites the audience into the feeling and the atmosphere. It sets the atmosphere of per scene what you're feeling. And it's, it's a painting of it. I mean, I think it's just as important as the dialogue and the storyline. And they're all elements that come in to making what can actually be a great production. And in a lot of ways, and I think even where dialogue is lacking, um, music can pick up. So it's very difficult to do too, because not to be like, let's talk about me, but the, the fan film that was, it was one of the most fun parts for me, but also one of the hardest parts for me, because when you're, when you're watching film, it's like, it's just, the scene is dead. It doesn't have uh, any of the sound to it at all. It's like, it's a rough production track. You got people's, stepping on twigs and you hear the camera shuffling around and you hear all kinds of funny noises that aren't in the final track and you have to score to that and then figure out, okay, you got to clear all that from your mind and think like, what is the emotion in this scene? What are we trying to get across? And then you have to time all of your music to the picture without it feeling like Mickey mouse. Like you're hitting like all the boop, 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 and make it sound like a Looney Tunes cartoon or like an early Disney cartoon where it's like kind of silly and unintentionally funny. So music is such an amazing part of filmmaking, but it's also um, one of the hardest parts of filmmaking because you can't step on the sound effects. You can't step on the dialogue and you can't be cheesy unless you're trying to make a comedy, I guess, but you ha- you try not to be cheesy as hard as you can, but you know, it's hard. Uh, yeah. It's hard not to sound corny sometimes mm-hmm. with what you're writing. The movie actually was, I'm looking at it and I didn't think it was, it actually was Aragon. It's a little later than I thought, 2006. And the music was yeah. by Patrick Doyle. And I remember just being so completely taken out of that movie. Because- Patrick Doyle did that one. Are yep. you serious? I did not. He did the Cinderella for 2015 for Disney. So that's shocking. Yeah, I don't think that was one of his better works because I just remember loathing it. And I, the Cinderella movie, I thought the music was fine. Oh, he did great. Well, okay. I wouldn't say it was outstanding and remarkable, but I do think for the Cinderella movie in particular, he did. It, it was very suffice. It was like very decently done. I mean, I liked some of the choices. I I know a little more than I probably should about different composers for scoring for music, but for movies. But I just I think it's a fascinating um, a field, and I think it adds so much. So I'm shocked that was Patrick Doyle on that yeah. one. I mean, yeah. I guess it gave him ten years to work on. Yeah, and Aragon as a whole was a terrible movie. So oh, it yeah. was. Yeah, he may have been very uninspired by the visuals he was seeing because sometimes That's that true. happens. Because I've had friends ask me to score a different project of theirs before, and um, I've gotten some really cool footage before that's like, oh, wow, this, yeah, I can think of something for that. And it it fires your imagination, and then you get other footage that's just kind of like, well, you're my buddy, so I want to help you. But it's like, it just, it doesn't make you feel anything when you watch it. And then you you feel like you're just kind of filling up the background. So he may have been feeling like that. Um, trying to score the movie so you never know it wasn't a very good movie in general the storyline yeah. it kind of i don't know it almost had that I, i'm gonna be very critical with this it almost had the feeling of a straight to vhs tape from the 90s yeah man very yeah. true i mean it did get john malkovich so i mean but that that wasn't even enough to save it but the book wasn't even that great i never read the book i just saw the movie i read the book it was it just felt like another 
like when you're talking movie scores i think we can all agree that john williams is like king and apparently he's going to keep making scores because he's still got it in him so god bless john williams but who outside of the land of long john live the king. long live the king absolutely um if i were a hobbit i would make sure you know that um i would I don't know. I was going to say that I was going to bow to him, but it happens the opposite in Return of the King. Everybody bows to the hobbits. You uh, bow if, to no one. <laughs> ex- exactly. You bow to no one. If you had to pick a favorite composer outside of John Williams, who would it be? Mine's Michael Gaiaccio. I act, His work in the new Star Trek movies is, even if you didn't like the movies, I think is like next level. I love that stuff. I'm going to go with Howard Shore. I mean, I I really love everything he did with Lord of the Rings, but he even worked on one of his earlier ones was That Thing You Do. It was uh, 1996. And he didn't come up with the kind of like soundtrack tunes for that, but he did do the scoring for that. And he did a really nice job. My number two would be Silvestri, I would say. I mean, I think even looking at Silvestri's stuff that he, he was even the score person for Castaway. And you don't actually have any music scoring until an hour and a half into the film. So what he did was he worked with surf and wind to create scoring effect. And it's really interesting, the artistic style that he does with that Mm. of kind of using the wind so that it doesn't sound hokey. It doesn't sound like, you know, like seagulls and random, you know, animals and stuff. That's next level film scoring right there. Oh, I mean, it was fascinating. So I would say Silvestri, probably probably between Shore and Silvestri for, for my number two. Um, yeah. David? For me, it's a really uh, hard choice because when I think about it, it's like I love Howard Shore's music from Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and King Kong. But then I'm also a big James Horner fan because I watched – you know, Land Before Time was like basically my favorite movie when I was a little kid because it was about dinosaurs. And, and between that and uh, American Tale and all the other great films that he's done, he did the Zorro soundtrack and everything. He also did uh, uh, James uh, Warner was Star great. Trek Two: Wrath of Khan. Yeah, yeah, that's. I mean, in my opinion, that's that's the best of the Star Trek scores. Is Wrath of Khan? I mean, it doesn't even sound. You don't okay. listen to it necessarily think space. It sounds like very seafaring adventure music, it does. Which, which works in space though, in a, in a cool way. And so, yeah, so for me, it's really hard because I also like Jerry Goldsmith too, though. Cause he, he made like the uh, Star Trek, the motion picture theme, which ended up being the score for next generation, the opening music. And mm-hmm. uh, Jerry Goldsmith did like, he did like first blood. He, he did like all kinds of, thing so for me it's actually really hard picking like a top top favorite other than john williams he's like obviously the number one guy but i like danny elfman too he has kind of weirder music that he does but um he's good too but my 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 top two choices would have to be between james horner and uh howard shore no Um, the work elfman did on wednesday was fantastic because he could have gone in such an Edward Scissorhands direction and just basically copy paste and he Mm. didn't and I loved what he did with Wednesday it was very intriguing and fun and I love seeing him just with um Tim um sort of an age the director yeah oh Tim Burton Burton is Burton why did I think age sorry oh Helen Bowden Carter is who they worked they worked together flawlessly quite often 
Oh, they're just such a cute little squadron, you know, and they like bring in depth sometimes and stuff like that. I, I love seeing it's kind of like the dark side of like Adam Sandler, like whatever Adam Sandler has going on with all his people who are in every uh-huh. movie. And then you have Burton's people and they kind of have like their little more like give me a Pirates of the Caribbean six with Johnny Depp back as Captain Jack Sparrow and give me Danny Elfman as, as the film film composer. And I'm I'm locked in. That would be fabulous. I, I saw like um, I don't even know what movie it's from, but I saw this weird gif of Gary Oldman from some movie he was in where he had dreadlocks, a big scar down his face and like a dead eye. And all I could think of is like we need a Pirates of the Caribbean movie where Gary Oldman plays Johnny Depp's like weird brother that we never knew Jack Sparrow had. Sign it's me actually up. The entire like the antagonist of the movie because like he's like the real rotten pirate of the two. Like he's actually the scary pirate to uh-huh. Johnny Depp's goofy pirate. That would be such a cool movie to see. I think uh, Disney is really missing an opportunity now. I mean people can say what they want about Johnny and he's been at least here in the U S he's been exonerated. Um, I, I think Disney has made him offers to bring him back. And as much as I want to say, Disney, you kind of messed up. I hope he does go back one day because I don't want a pirates of the Caribbean movie. And I do want another one with Johnny Depp as captain Jack. Mm-hmm. I love that series. Very beloved. The last thing I was going to say, but we got sidetracked a little bit about uh, the War of the Rohirrim is if you guys have not had a chance, check out the guy that plays Helm Hammerhand. It's Brian Cox. And I've seen it. I've seen him in other stuff before. But if you look at at the photo, my goodness, they chose great for that role because he looks just like King Theoden from uh, Lord of the Rings by Peter Jackson, like the, the similarities and the facial structure obviously probably intentional but i i love it when they pay attention to detail like that totally he's a great actor he he actually ironically enough he's he spent a lot of his uh career in hollywood um playing evil uh southerners in, oh, really? in the u.s government like he he's usually like the the top guy at the cia he was in the Bourne films he was conklin's boss who had him killed at the end of that movie and uh he, he plays a villain really well, but he's also um, he's like a Shakespearean actor. He's a stage actor. He's um, I think he's from Scotland, if I remember right. Yes, he is originally, mm-hmm. which makes it ironic that he's like in most movies as an American and specifically a Southern guy. But he yeah. does it really well. You'd never know that he wasn't from here. He's one of the few guys from another country that actually can sound American. Mm. Uh, so people from the UK. Actor. In general, if they try to do an American accent, typically the easiest accent for them to do is a Southern accent just because of how, like, language-wise, the accents evolved. And so I it's never a closer... thought about that. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. So if you look at a lot of um, Sam Palladio is a good example and Claire Bowden is, as well. They were both on the show in Nashville and they're both British, but it is easier for them to manipulate their given accent and create a drawl out of it. And it's kind of an interesting thing. So Tom Hiddleston is actually one of the most talented that I've ever seen. Uh, where he can actually do a straight, um, he played off Scott Fitzgerald, uh, Midnight in Paris, and he was actually able to kind of hone in on that upper Midwest 
accent, which is incredibly hard for a British person to do. So if you, it's kind of almost, it's, I don't want to take away from what they're doing, but it's a, it's a little bit kind of a cheap cop out to do a Southern. For all time, always, Callie, he is just a man of many talents. We haven't said that in a while here on the show. When's this true? This is very true. And it's, I mean, he's part of the inspiration behind the show, or at least the name of the show. Now, what I want to get into, guys, uh, we've kind of bounced around a bit here on the Green Jet Ski podcast with my co-host, Kelly Logan, special guest, David Overholt of Vader Reviews on YouTube. Check him out. Is all things Tom Cruise, because there's a lot going on that needs to be dissected. This is a bit of a longer podcast, but you know what? I haven't eaten and uh, it's my show. So we're going to go on for a bit until I finish my coffee anyway. David, you and I were thinking about movies we were most looking forward to in 2024, and you made a, a video. People should check that out on your channel. And I said, that you missed one, Dave. You missed Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 2, Mission Impossible MI8. And then after I even commented on Twitter, by the way, follow me at Green Jet Ski Pod on Twitter, on X. I read an article like back from October that I somehow missed that because of the strikes that went on, Mission Impossible 8, Dead Reckoning Part 2, it's not coming out until 2025. They pushed it back basically a whole year. And that just, man, I'm so looking forward to that next, maybe last installment of the franchise. And we got to wait a bit. Yeah, that was that was really unfortunate. Because I was like, oh, man, yeah, I I've totally forgot. I was excited about, uh, I was excited to see where it was going to go after Part 1. And, you know, they've been saying this is like, this is the big finale of the franchise as a whole. And I don't, I don't know if that's so. true anymore because he just said recently, like, well, if uh, if Harrison Ford can keep doing yes. it, then so can I. So it's like, I don't know what he's going to jump off of to uh, top everything else he's done if he keeps making, like, you know, Mission Impossible 27. But uh, he's going to run out of things to jump off of. I'll, but, I'll, uh, I'll pull it up here as, as one of you guys is responding because uh, I want to get the number out there to the audience. And I forget what it was, even though. Num number seven didn't do too well at the box office because who knew Barbie was going to take off like it did. I mean, that just blew my mind. Um, even though I did go see it three times, it still as a series has made it just in a, so much money. It's not even funny. And it's something that's been record breaking. And so I think that's possibly why they're like, yeah, you know what? Maybe we're not going to stop this because even though seven didn't bring in as much as the others, this series is still continually bringing money to the table. Mm -hmm. I think aside from Mission Impossible 2, uh, the series' strength is that it has had such an internal consistency, not only with quality, but also with tone. Um, Mission Impossible 2 was kind of a weird outlier where it was just kind of like, I don't know what that movie was being. It's it's goofy fun because it's like electric guitars and leather jackets and slow motion and uh, lots of birds flying around. Um, but after Mission Impossible 2, I can't think of a single one in the franchise that I didn't enjoy. And the plots keep getting more and more complex each time. He always has to top himself with the stunt each movie, and he always does. It's a really impressive franchise, and uh, I'm curious to see if he does have a good enough idea of where to take it after Mission Impossible 8. That must mean he's got some really cool ideas. I have an idea for him. If I I think it'd be interesting for him to do something that was AI involved, like where he was like fighting against some sort of AI type of. Well, that's almost what this number seven is. I mean, yeah, it, that that is what this one. Oh, it is. About. It is. Okay. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's why I kept pushing you to go see it, Callie, because I know you and I are on the same page with that. But basically, it's the evolution of AI into a singularity that's going to take over the world and being self-aware. Oh, okay. Well, then I feel embarrassed. Um, No, now you should just go see it. I should just go see it now. I was was too busy seeing Barbie. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's a good movie. Um, The only thing is, like, I thought the villain was a bit weak. Uh, there, there's like a human villain of the movie uh, that, mm. you know, because Tom Cruise has to punch somebody, you know, and run very fast. Rule. Exactly. He's got to run really fast and punch somebody in a, in a Mission Impossible movie. And uh, now I can't find the exact figure I'm looking for as far as franchise. I'll continue to look. But uh, this is impressive too. this stat. And this might be why they're like, oh, maybe eight's not the last one. So the seventh and longest chapter, apparently number seven, the, the longest in the franchise and it saw uh, a breaking record for the franchise by grossing on the preview day, which is typically before opening day, $7 million in just that first evening of screen- screenings alone. And that's pretty impressive. It's a pretty nice chunk of change, I got to say. It is. Yeah. But, but there might there's another stat, and I'll try and find it during the show, but apparently as a franchise, it's broken some records too as far as the box office goes, which shows you... People want to see these authentic characters. They want to see movies that have a lot of great, as you were saying, David, plot development. There's not a whole lot of like agenda in it. It's just great storytelling with obvious protagonists. Really, even though the antagonist, I don't think, was as big in this one, David, I think you're going to see it flushed out in part two, in Dead Reckoning part two. Uh, because you go to the Rotten Tomatoes on this last one, and again, just for reference, you're still sitting in the 90 percentile. People love this film, despite yeah. the box office wasn't as we were hoping. Mm-hmm. I love this wacky little sidekick. Um, it was, uh, I think her name is Pom Clementif, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. She's uh, the lady who played Mantis in Guardians of the Galaxy. She did a great oh, job. She She basically seems like, after I saw this movie, I thought, like, you know, she would make a great Harley Quinn because she she played this like kind of gleefully insane, dangerous character, and uh, it was such a departure from how sweet and goofy she seems in uh, um, Guardians of the Galaxy. It really impressed me with with her performance. Um, that was my my only thing was like I thought she was better than like the her boss that she was reporting to. So I wish he could have had a bit more presence because uh, the way I described him in my review was kind of like he seems sort of like a trendy middle-aged dude that should be on like the commercial for like a Ford pickup truck where it's kind of like I'm really from California, but I'm going to pretend I'm a, I'm a, you know, Texas rancher, you know, because I'm wearing some jeans and a flannel shirt. You know, it's like if he, he didn't seem very, I don't know, he just he didn't have an edge to him. Um, and especially since this is like the last movie, maybe in the franchise, I thought like, I would have liked a guy that had a bit more of a creepy vibe, um, or a dangerous edge to him. But other than him, the movie was great. And uh, hopefully he'll be better in the next one. Nothing against the actor. It's just like his costuming and they didn't give him much to do in the film. So he didn't really stand out. Well, maybe now, and I won't give anything away because Callie hasn't seen it, but maybe now because he didn't get his objective at the end of part seven, you're going to see him stand out a lot more in the at least conclusion of this particular story. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm hoping he probably will. He probably will. 
Yeah. The, uh, so uh, again, still can't find the stat, but I'm uh, just more things to add to to the fire here. Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part One. It turns out it had the best five day opening. So not just preview night, but five day opening total in franchise history. Even though it fell below pr- projections, it still came out really, really strong. And I don't get enough of that bike scene. I, I saw it even in the Screen X format, David, that I've told you, where it takes up the sides of the movie theater, and you feel like you're launching yourself off a mountain cliff. It's great. That would be cool to see. I don't think we have those kind of theaters in my area, so I haven't been able to. They were big in Europe. In Cali, are they in your area at all? Because apparently they're pretty new here, from what I understand, just in the last couple of years here in the U.S. We don't have anything like that. But yeah, it it, cool. <laughs> it's called it's called Screen X. So you have your your normal screen in front of you, but then they take the sides of the theater. And they project only at certain like really pivotal moments of the film, especially in action movies on the side where the wall would be. It extends the screen. So you almost have a panorama and it's not it's not 360, but you get a lot of the background images that really make you feel like you're more a part of the experience and of the story. It's really cool. See, in Top Gun, that would have been really cool. Oh, trust me. I saw like that a couple of times. Speaking of Top Gun. Because $1.5 billion is nothing to sneeze at. And we thought that was going to be the last of, you know, Captain Pete Mitchell and uh, the new age of, you know, drones and non no pilots flying planes would be ushered upon us. Although real life, that's probably closer than we would like. Just came out the other day. I was, you know, just perusing Twitter. And I, I saw the article because thank you to a follower of yours, David, that uh, showed us that Top Gun 3 is indeed now green lit and they're working furiously to get this into reality. Hopefully we don't have to wait another three decades. I doubt it. But it seems like they saw the success of the second one. And they said, you know what? This is what people want to see. We're doing more. Yeah, I think this also has something to do with the fact that um, Tom Cruise said that he's he's wanting to develop like a whole slate of action franchises that he can pursue going forward just in case he's done with Mission Impossible. Um, And uh, he said that the fan response to um, Top Gun was so great. He just wants to make people happy and give them more of what they want. Say what you will about the guy. He really respects his audience and he really tries to give people what they want to see. And that's what I love about his movies. I saw a couple of people and I actually do want this. is It seems trivial, but I don't think that it is. I saw uh, a couple of people kind of make snarky comments about it. You saw it with Mission Impossible. You saw it first with Top Gun where he makes these little pre-movie announcements. Hey, thanks for coming out to the theater. We made this movie for you. We really hope you enjoy it. Lots of hard work. When I actually think he's being very authentic when he films these things, because you can tell the passion that goes into making these movies. Yeah. yeah, I, agree. I think it's cool, too, that he's doing that, because, I mean, we're, we're in a time frame where it seems like every director, like you, can, you almost can't go a day without some actor or director or studio basically being a jerk to their audience and then they wonder why people don't want to come see their movies it's like well you gotta you gotta court your audience you gotta be nice to people if you gotta win them over especially if you're gonna do something that audiences aren't you know possibly gonna like you really need to be nice to them then absolutely Um, but the cool thing about tom cruise is he's nice to audiences when he doesn't have to be because people would come to his movies 
whether he made those thank yous or not, he just really appreciates people I think uh, coming to his films. I think Tom just gets the the entire movie making process. And I also think he truly appreciates uh, people might say I'm wrong and that's fine. Every single audience member that spends their hard earned money that comes to the theater to see his work that makes him what he is. I think he gets it. I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you can say what you want about him personally, but, you know, we all can make our own individual choices. I don't take stock in that. I've never heard him say anything nasty about anybody. I've heard he's a very nice man to work with, and I continue to support his work. I mean, he he said in an interview one time that uh, he said, you got people working double shifts trying to put food on their table for their families, and they're spending that money, what little they have, just try to forget their problems for two and a half hours and be entertained. And he said, like, that's what other movie makers don't get. And what they don't care about is the fact that, um, you know, people are spending what little they have to come try and be happy for a couple of hours. So the least you can do is try to give them a good film and give them a good time. And that's why he put so much effort into it. And I respect that. I respect that, too. I mean, I saw in theaters because, one, I respect that and knowing that about him, too. I just I mean, it's my favorite movie of all time now. Top Gun Maverick. I saw a record breaking in theater times uh, 15 for Top Gun Maverick, and I enjoyed it every single time, probably just as much, uh, if not more sometimes than the previous, because I would still find things that I hadn't picked up on, you know, the first couple of times. Sometimes with action movies, especially um, big spectacle films, you do have to see it a few times because you're so overwhelmed by everything that's just being thrown at the screen and all the sound design and everything that sometimes it's like, oh, wow, that it just it just really fills up all your senses so much. you got to kind of go back and watch it again. I, I saw Godzilla minus one twice in theaters Still and need to see that. I liked it better the second time. Um, it was a great movie. Both so, quality films are worth seeing multiple times. I mean, I think I had this conversation with my dad. One of our favorite films to watch is Godfather Part 1 and 2. Part 3 is trash. But, um, I mean, I've probably seen 1 and 2 probably 50 times each. And I still pick up things that I didn't mm-hmm. notice before in stylization or dialogue or storyline or just subtle little things over and over. And it's, I think great films are worth watching again and again. Not for obsession necessarily, but just for respect of art and studying. It's a favorite book you're picking up again. That's just mm-hmm. in the form of a movie. You like visit visiting that world and and escaping. And I'm going to actually exclude Top Gun Maverick because I'll end up choosing it. And I don't want to choose it. So if you guys had to pick a favorite Tom Cruise film that you've seen over the years, it does not matter the genre because he's done just about everything. What would it be and why? How does it, how, how does it speak to you? Minority Report. I mean, I think that was one of the most fascinating movies. I mean, that came out, I think, 2000, maybe a one. Um, and just some of the things like just when he's walking into the gap and he's got the different guy's eyes. And so it's like, hey, welcome back to, you know, Mr. You know, whatever. Um, would you like to buy some more of those chinos? You know, and it was just really interesting to me to think about that. And then seeing now um, how far we've come technology wise and how that was really cutting edge and like really like um a thought provoking and i remember watching that and thinking like wow that would be insane if the world was like that and every time i go somewhere now and buy something and they're able to pull up 
very easily, a little too easily, um, what I've purchased in the past, I think of that movie. Absolutely. David, what's yours? Uh, Mine would uh, have to be The Last Samurai. Um, Mm. Not only just for the big battle sequences and the historical scope of the film, but just the arcs that his character goes through in that movie, going from such a broken, depressed person and then finding this path um oh i mean it's not a true path of redemption in a spiritual sense but like from a storytelling standpoint he finds himself again through this warrior culture that he gets like brought into and just his relationship with katsumoto and the respect they have for each other and uh just just the whole story of the film, how it's the, the ending of an age. There are so many different levels to that movie and so much care and artistry that went into it. And there, there isn't a bad performance in the movie either because there, there are certain films I like, but it's kind of like, ah, man, that one character wasn't too good. But there isn't a character in um, The Last Samurai that I can think of that gave a bad performance. Even the child actors gave good performances in that movie, and that's that's pretty impressive. Mine? I have a second. No, go ahead, Kelly. Go ahead. I was going to say, well, while you were talking, I was also thinking about how good Far and Away is. And that's another John Williams scored movie. It's an underappreciated movie. Oh, my gosh. With Nicole Kidman, too. And just, I mean, his accent's not that great. Tom Cruise's, you know, he, I mean, he try, he really tries. But just thinking about storyline and the commitment and how, like, just the heart of the American pioneer and... It, how they showcase the time period. So I just want to throw that one in there too, because it also just hits on John Williams, which we did earlier. So no, that's great. Okay, uh, I'm done now. <laughs> no, mine happens to be one that I, it was a great movie, and I don't think it gets enough love because it really shows that we can change as people and that love is the answer to everything, which David, you talk about, you know, we don't have enough of that. That's why you, you kind of changed the, the way you stylize your videos is because of the time in which we live. But I think it's a timeless tale of you know how we can if we really let ourselves become better people and that's rain man with not just tom cruise but dustin hoffman as well and you just see him as the beginning of the film being this arrogant jerk that only cares about money the flashy things in life and he finds out that his father who's passed away has you know left him and his brother uh, which he didn't even know that he had that he left him all this money and then he finds out that the money is actually going to his brother. And so he's trying to befriend his brother so he can make sure that he gets the money. And by the end, the money doesn't even matter to him. All he cares about is having a relationship with, with his brother and not allowing anybody else to take that away from him. And it's just beautiful. Have you seen that movie, David? I know that's maybe not necessarily one uh, that you normally watch. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it. I've heard it's a really good film. Um I don't. I don't actually watch a whole lot of dramas. I'm more of a sci-fi and uh, animation or action uh, kind of guy, typically. But I've heard it's a really, really good film. I've seen little clips of it, but I haven't seen the whole thing. Knowing how you like the human condition and what can make us better people, I really think you would enjoy it. I'd, I'd give it. I'd give it a watch. I think it's worth it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, anything on your brains before we uh, wrap up here, David? Oh, yeah, let's get an update. Uh, what's going on uh, with your uh, independent project going on at Vader Reviews? Update us in the last couple of minutes here 
on the show if there's anything new that you have to share with us. Oh, for one thing, my uh, my swashbuckling beard and mustache is still growing in nicely. Looking very nice. Um, I'm, I've got that kind of like uh, green arrow from the DC Comics look going now. But um, we're me and my buddy Micah, we're, we're still in the middle of uh, working out the sword fighting choreography. I have everything but like two little segments of the fight figured out now. How we do it is uh, we meet up twice a week, at least when I'm not sick. We've missed this week because I wasn't feeling good. But next week, we're going to hit it again. And um, we just practice for a few hours. And uh, we film what we practice when we come up with a new little bit of fight. And I've been kind of editing all the little pieces together as a rough cut to see, like, is there a good ebb and flow to the fight scene? And uh, it's coming together pretty good right now. And I've finished typing up the script and finalizing all the dialogue. Um, I'm working on getting the digital sets made. And I'm doing all kinds of VFX compositing tests because we're dealing with metal sores, which are very reflective. So it requires a bit of problem solving with the green screen because mirror finished swords tend to reflect a lot of green. So they want to disappear on me all the time. So I am solving the problem though. I I've got it figured out now, but it was, it was giving me quite a bit of trouble there for a couple of weeks. Look, we're fighting with um, nothing. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard to look cool when uh, your sword blade isn't even there. So it was either that, or it was like a weird big kind of blob of greenish gray that wouldn't disappear nicely. Um, but I've, I've got that issue resolved now. And uh, we're working on our speed for for the fight, trying to make sure we stay safe so we don't. Any smack storyboarding each other in the yet? Face. Um, you, were ta- you, were talk- you were talking about g- getting ready to do that. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. actually begun. Yeah, that. I I haven't started the storyboarding process yet because um, the way I do that is once I have the fight figured out completely, because we just practice in my living room. Uh, try not to hit the ceiling fan or uh, the couch or anything. Try not to step on the cat. But once I have the fight completed in its form where we know all the moves and I can kind of know in my head, okay, this scene links to this scene in this part, we're going to go be going down this alleyway over there. Then we're going to be up on a roof or, you know, whatever, wherever the fight goes. Then once I have it all uh, figured out, then I can storyboard it shot for shot because the storyboards have to match up with the actual choreography we're doing. Because like when you're editing, it's like music. You have to be on time you have to have this syncopated rhythm to keep it exciting and so that planning process for the shots it's really determined by what you're actually doing in the fight so that part uh i have to wait until we get the fight finished but like i said we only have two more little bits to uh to figure out and then we'll have a pretty good fight it's probably going to be about like a maybe a two minute and 30 second to three minute fight in terms of actual like swords clanging around, but there will be like little interjections of, you know, dialogue and things in the middle of the fight, pacing around each other, building intensity to kind of draw it out. It'll probably end up being about maybe a five to six minute sequence of the fight itself. And uh, then we'll have other sequences of dialogue before and after to kind of fill it out into a, like about a 15 to 20 minute film. So um, but it's coming along really well. We have all the costumes, like I said, except for the costume for whoever is going to be the girl character in the movie. We still have to find her, but we can do everything else. We can figure that out later because uh, we're doing all this on green screen. So whenever we find somebody, we'll just be like, hey, we'll set up a green screen 
do your dialogue and then I'll just put you in and it'll look like she's standing right there with us. So um, that's the nice thing about green screen. You don't even need your cast to be in the same state as you necessarily. All they need is a green screen and a camera and uh, you can direct them over Skype because that's what I did with my friend Jessica for the fan film. And I made it look like she was fighting me in a Darth Vader suit on top of a flaming platform. So yeah, and the technology and works. like a year apart. So yeah, the technology works well too. Cause you can, li- I mean, it literally feels like you guys are right next to each other. Yeah. That, that was fun. It was, that was a fun, that's like my favorite effect shot of the whole movie because it's like, it looks so much like we're really fighting each other. Um, so then after, after the storyboarding, then I'm going to buy a new green screen. Cause we're, we need to buy a big, like 20 foot by 10 foot green screen. So we have enough room to travel while we're swinging our swords around at each other. We're probably going to be filming in uh, February if we can, because I don't want to be trying to uh, be in these hot costumes, swinging swords at each other in like 98 degree temperatures. I did that on Fallen Jedi and I don't want to repeat that again. So, uh, but yeah, hopefully we'll be able to be uh, in production on this for the, from a filming standpoint in February. So that's what we're shooting for. Well, plus then you, you know, you don't want to, I know some of that is old Vader garb. You don't want to, you know, add to the additional smell that was picked up because you were just fighting in all those hot conditions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, it's, it's rough doing that stuff too, because it's very physical and, um, this, this kind of fighting is way more aerobic than lightsaber fighting because you're doing a lot of back and forth and very specific footwork too. So, as as is it new stuff that you're having to learn i know we're wrapping up is it new stuff you're having to learn though because it is a different type of a fighting style david yeah yeah i'm i i've been looking up a lot of actual uh like traditional fencing techniques as far as footwork and i mean i'm not a fencer for real i just do this kind of stuff for fun and i actually bought a training dvd on uh stage fencing for film and television it's uh guy who trains all kinds of shakespeare companies how to do all their sword fights safely oh. so they don't accidentally kill each other with their swords on stage so so i've been learning that kind of stuff and mixing it with um some real historical sword techniques that i've been seeing on youtube and with different research i've been doing and then i'm teaching that stuff to my buddy micah and it's a big change because we're going from like two-handed like baseball bat lightsaber swings to like now it's all this it's one-handed it's all on the wrist and uh, very light on your feet back and forth kind of jumping and lunging and so it, it gets you out of breath te- really quick. It seems more technical. Oh yeah, yeah. There because also it's the speed of it that's really crazy with lightsabers. Um, you have a lot of moves you can remember, but they're very fluid. They're designed to flow well from one to another, but. With fencing, it's like it's like a game of chess at 100 miles an hour. It's it's really crazy and uh, very difficult to do. But it's very satisfying when you get a piece down and it's like, wow, we got that going really fast. Your forearms burn like crazy when you're doing it too, because it's all it's all this wrist stuff, and it's like my my right arm is actually way bigger than my left now. So I oh, need to start working out my left arm because I'm starting to look like Popeye with uh, got to become a southpaw. Right. Got to become a self. Yeah, it's it's going to look, it's going to look kind of weird. So I, I need to, uh, fortunately I can wear long sleeves right now, but I need to, I should have been balancing out my left arm to my, to my right. Cause it looks kind of weird right now. That's, in, that's, that's interesting. You know what they need is in your next star Wars fan project, you need to come up with a, a Jedi or a Sith that actually fights in a fencing type style. 
that would be really cool to see because someone put lightsaber blades over the Pirates of the Caribbean films and over the Zorro film with Antonio Banderas. You showed you, you showed the so Zorro one on your channel. That's cool. pretty cool. I like yeah. that. They they did it with the Princess Bride fight too, and that's that's insane how fast you you really get an idea of how fast those blades are moving when the lightsabers are put over them because your eyes can actually track what the blades are doing for once instead of it just being like this real quick blur. Yeah. And uh, it's really cool. Well, it sounds like things are coming along for Avenger of Blood, and I'm looking forward to finding out more about this this character that, you, that you've created. It sounds like there's a lot of depth to him and that, you know, through flashbacks and, and, and other devices, you're going to be able to have a pretty intimate time with this character. And hopefully people like it because I'd like to see more of it. The, the concept alone is fascinating. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping people like it. I'm, I'm taking a lot more of a risk uh, from a performance standpoint this time because uh, it's easy to act when you have a helmet on your head and no one can see your face. I did a little bit of acting with my face as Faust, but it's it's pretty easy to just be like a snooty British guy in an Imperial officer uniform. It, you pretty much know what you have to do. But for this one, I'm going to actually have to give some genuine emotion. And Plus, acting while you're fighting is... Oh, absolutely. Because you're having to keep all of your moves in your head, but then you're also having to emote and be a character so I don't just look like a dweeb playing with my buddy in the backyard swinging swords at him. Hey, you think walking and chewing gum is hard? Try acting and fighting with swords at the same time. That's not an easy yeah. task. It's it's difficult. Plus, we have dialogue in the middle of our fight as well. So so fortunately, my buddy Micah, he he did some uh, some Shakespeare stuff in college when he was younger. So that's not as tricky for him. I'm 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 kind of having to stretch myself a little bit with this one because I'm also doing an accent too uh, to try to sound like I'm from Spain and uh, um, just because of the nature of the character. Yeah. And uh, so it's it's going to be a lot of fun. And then once I have all that done, we have all the filming done and all the compositing for the effects. Then we get to the fun part for me, which is uh, writing the musical theme and uh, scoring the thing. And that'll be great because so, you'll be able to use a lot of creativity with a you know with a stuff that's brand new that you don't have to kind of go, okay, I'm in the star Wars universe. I got to do, you know, do it right by John Williams. I mean, this yeah. is all going to be your own. Yeah. That that's the really cool thing to me about this project is like everything you see good or bad, we're going to sink or swim on our own creativity for this one. Because when you're doing a star Wars fan film, you have a lot handed to you themes. You can reuse characters, armor, props, all kinds of really good stuff. But for this, we have to build it all on our own. And it's a challenge, but it's a very fun challenge because this will be something people haven't seen before. Hmm. Um, and I don't mean that in some big like, it'll blow your mind. We'll change cinema forever. I just mean like, you haven't seen this character before. Uh, you haven't heard this music before. It's not based on an existing property. So it's a really fun chance to uh, completely create something from the ground up and uh, hopefully give people something they'll enjoy watching. Well, that's and that's the goal. I mean, it was the goal when you did your fan film because you wanted to stay true to the vision of George Lucas. And now you have Dante Legato, the Avenger of Blood, which I think is going to be be great. And as this develops and hopefully you'll drop more teasers when you have behind the scenes stuff and people can watch updates at Vita Reviews, uh, people will get sucked in by this and it'll get great reception. And you can keep making more of these type of adventures because there's always monsters out there to fight, Dave. Yeah. 
Yeah. We are going to be posting um, behind the scenes featurettes like we did on the fan film. Not quite as many of them because this isn't as long of a film. Uh, so we don't want to give the whole movie away. But we will be posting some uh, featurettes relatively soon here. So uh, we're hoping to kind of introduce uh, the audience to the character and the world a little bit before they see the movie. So they, they'll have kind of a framework and uh, hopefully build some excitement. That's great. Well, it's all about excitement with uh, with you, Dave. It's why we have you on the show. David Overholt of Vader Reviews. You can check out uh, everything about Dante Legato and the Avenger of Blood over at Vader Reviews, as well as his every week on a Sunday. Check it out. He's got new videos coming out talking about reviewing streaming and TV and movies. And sometimes he's forgiving. Sometimes he's not. So you just got to tune in for all the hilarity. I know I do. Uh, thanks for stopping by, Dave, talking Lord of the Rings with Callie, who had to hop off. And we always have a, a, a good time talking with you here on the Green Jet Ski podcast. So it's been a real treat. Thank you again for having me. I, I really enjoyed talking with you guys. It's been a great conversation. And uh, um, I hope you guys are doing well where you are. I hope all your listeners are doing great out there. And uh, just thanks for having me on to talk about fun nerd stuff. I have a blast. Oh, we always love talking. That's the nerd stuff is what we do here on the show. And how, what's the best way people can contact you, Dave? Uh, the best way to stay in contact with us is just to uh, follow us on Twitter at Vader Reviews. I post there all the time. Uh, I post links to all my videos because sometimes YouTube isn't great at notifying. Uh, you can subscribe to the YouTube channel. You'll just find us. Uh, just search Vader Reviews and we'll pop up. And uh, we also have a Facebook page, but I mean, I post my latest video each week to the Facebook page, but we're not super active there. Twitter is the main place or in the comment section of YouTube if you want to have a talk with me, because because uh, I always read the questions and I, I read the comments on YouTube and I, I answer everybody. So. And like you were wow. saying the other night on the stream, if you don't get an answer, it's generally because you just somehow missed it and you either didn't get a notification or you accidentally skimmed over it because you're pretty good at replying to just about everybody. Yeah, I try to reply to every single comment. Every once in a while, YouTube will hide that someone has left a comment on one of my videos, and then I'll come back to it like months later and see there are like three or four comments from people that for some reason YouTube never told me they commented. So then I answer them once I find their comment. So. So if, if there is anybody out there who's left a comment that I haven't answered, it's nothing personal. It's just I didn't see uh, that you posted it. Last thing I'll say is people can also check out uh, co-host Callie Logan, her book that is coming out. It's The Wallflower That Bloomed, Finding Your Place at the Lunch Table of Life with an endorsement by me. And that's coming out in May. You can check it out on Amazon with the pre-order and check out updates at CallieLogan.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Green Jet Ski Pod. DM us anything you want to talk about or comments about any of the past or previous shows. And the last thing I have to say, Dave, is uh, my, my goal for you on a Wednesday night is to see, I know it's difficult, but to see Darth Vader, Vader Reviews, suited up playing video games. I think that would be hilarious. It will. It might be kind of hard to see the screen in the, in the helmet, but I'll, I'll give it a try one of these days. I definitely will. Suggestion from the peanut gallery. It, you know, I mean, it's it's uh, one one of the benefits of the week, the midweek live stream is that I don't have to get into the suit. But but uh, once I start building an audience, um, I think I'll have to do that, especially in October or something, just so I can dress up and be silly. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Oh, and in October, then we might be able to see uh, Bonaparte pop on by as well. He, I always get a kick out of him every uh, every Halloween season. That that's true. I'd actually be able to see out of that mask better than Vader. So Bonaparte might be a better bet than even Vader for playing video games. So oh, Bonaparte playing games. I mean, I don't know. I'd have, I think... I'd have to play a game that I'm really bad at, so I can get all frustrated because uh, <laughs> I'd have to do it in character. So he seems like the type that would rage quit on a exactly. game to me. I don't know. We'll keep both of those ideas in mind. Dave, thanks for stopping by the show. I appreciate it, my friend. Thanks for having me. It was good talking to you guys. Noah here on the Green Jet Ski Podcast. David Overholt. Check him out at Vader Reviews on YouTube. And we'll see you next time right here on the Green Jet Ski Podcast. Mm-hmm.